to get those really high doses of radiation, we have to make this, the area really small so that we're not giving high doses of radiation to organs at risk. Um, so that means that our tolerances are two millimeters and sometimes even we shift to zero. So if you put something in the mix, like a patient training a lot and deciding that they're going to do a lot of weight training and you change the way their body is laid out from that one day at CT, that changes how the radiation is absorbed or attenuated. The amount of radiation that's that is absorbed is separate and different. And we mightn't be treating the prostate as well as we would have would have if the patient has stayed the same. This week's episode of the Reach podcast is sponsored by the Lamstrong Foundation, which is a non-profit organization founded by Major League Soccer goalkeeper and stage four Hodgkinson former survivor, Matt Lamson. The mission of the Lamstrong Foundation is to provide difference-making financial, emotional and motivational support to cancer patients and families in all stages of cancer treatment and recovery, as well as to fund proven cancer researchers. So for more information and regular updates on the Lamstrong Foundation and what they're doing, go ahead and follow the Lamstrong Foundation on Facebook or visit lamstrong.com today. Hey, welcome back to episode 31 of the Reach podcast. Uh, in today's show, I'm chatting to Sam Ryan, who is a radiotherapist or radiation therapist uh, over in England and has a lot of experience in Ireland doing the same thing. And Sam actually reached out to me a few weeks ago. Uh, she had caught the podcast, wherever, and uh, started to binge listen to it. And kind of one of her questions as a radiotherapist and one of one of the things she's seen in her experience is how weight changes and changes in body weight can dramatically affect the accuracy of radiation therapy. So it was actually a really cool conversation we started up initially kind of going back and forth over email. But, you know, the more I talked to her, the more I felt that this just needed to be out there for both researchers and clinicians who are working with this population, understanding the effects of body weight changes, whether it's hypertrophy in terms of building lean body mass, or losing weight, or whatever the case may be, all those changes can have a dramatic effect on the accuracy and the effectiveness of radiation therapy. So sit back and enjoy the show. I'll put Sam's contact information in the show notes. She's been gracious enough to offer her email if you have any questions about this stuff. But other than that, enjoy the chat. All right, Sam. So listen, uh, I really appreciate you being on the show today. Uh, you reached out to me, which uh, when you when you started talking about some of the topics you want to discuss, I think this information needs to be out there. And as you said, if you are a professional working with a cancer patient or survivor, things like body weight changes during radiation are massive and, and you have some, some really great information on the implications of that. But before we go into the conversation, let's give uh, the listeners a little bit of background of who you are, uh, what you're doing and kind of uh, how this all comes together. Okay, um, I suppose I did my undergrad in therapeutic radiography in Queen Margaret University back in 2014. And then I've been working between Ireland and England in private sector and NHS, treating cancer patients and like in smaller hospitals and bigger hospitals where there's like different different kind of issues that come up. And then in last year, I started my master's in UCD um, on food, nutrition and health. Um, so that's my kind of academic background then. And I suppose from a personal in- interest, working with um exercise and it's very much personal I would love to say I'd studied exercise a little bit more but no it's um 
Olympic weightlifting is my sport and the goal and any research I've done in terms of exercise is purely personal. Um, and then meeting patients that have the same kind of interests, you do kind of touch on the subject of oncology and exercise physiology with them. So seeing Reach as a podcast was really enlightening, really more than anything else to see the amount of research that's gone into it. So you are a radiation therapist whose day-to-day job is to kind of administer therapy to different cancer patients. Yeah, the in everywhere bar the UK, it's a radiation therapist. But in the UK, you're a therapeutic radiographer, so it's just a different term. But yeah, right. uh, day-to-day, nine, well, eight till eight, roughly, I work. And eight to I'd eight? See, yeah, you're kind of, <laughs> you start at eight and you kind of stay until you're finished. So it's often eight o'clock in the evening. Um, and you have, I see about between 45 and 50 patients a day. So it is fast-paced, 12-minute time slots, go, go, go. So we'll, uh, we'll avoid the conversation of healthcare to uh, workers in the health system. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll skip right on to, uh, so obviously your the radiation, uh, the protocol, I'd imagine, would differ based on a variety of factors. But, you know, we've talked about radiation and, and chemo a lot on the podcast, but haven't had anyone with the background and expertise that you do to, to really explain what radiation is, the purpose of it, and how, or what does a typical treatment course look like? Yeah, like you said, it does vary massively. So you can have some patients who are coming in for one treatment alone, and then you have other patients coming in for six to eight weeks. So like I said, 12-minute time slots, and if they are coming in for six to eight weeks, you're seeing them daily, and it becomes part of their day-to-day routine For like in those instances. Previously and historically, if your patient was coming in for one treatment alone, it would have been palliative. But the way radiotherapy has worked now, the courses of radiotherapy are getting shorter and shorter. So now, because technology is advancing so much, we can give really high dose radiation to very small areas and save a lot of the, well, we call them OARs, so they're organs at risk. So we can save a lot of the organs at risk and do it in one, two fractions. So stereotactic radiotherapy are, is a, one of those ways that you can do that. And that's one of the areas I'm working at the minute. So it, before it would have been like kind of a, a broad uh, beam across a, a larger area and you're putting more organs and tissue at risk of... Getting... Oh, yeah. Historically, like it was literally put on a square field on the area that you wanted to treat, which might have been like you're lucky to have a CT scanner. So it would have been very, very basic. So it was basically a square applied on and treat everything in in its way. So patients would have really horrific side effects, a lot worse than they have now. But then again, they they weren't expected to live that long. So sometimes they weren't expected to see these side effects. But like radiation enteritis was all, it was all sorts of side effects that people didn't even know about them. Like when you think about it, historically radiation therapy was used to treat cold sores, eczema, like all this kind of thing. We, really? They didn't know what the side effects were going to be. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And secondary, like secondary cancers from radiation were a risk, though patients often didn't live long enough to see them. Yeah. Okay. So right now it's, it's, it's gotten a lot more targeting. You can really zero in on an area and give them kind of a higher dose. Um, does that higher dose thing, well, the broader... Uh, field radiation may have caused greater side effects on a larger area. Does that higher dose then cause more localized side effects? It's a therapeutic ratio, we kind of call it. So we have to weigh up whether 
giving that really high dose radiation is going to, yes, it'll shrink the tumour massively, but will it cause really horrible side effects? So you kind of have to weigh up what's the, the, the benefit there. Though we are massively helped along now with technology in terms of we can do so much shielding now. We can make really small, small fields and give very, very high doses. So, yeah, we can give higher doses, but because we can do so much in terms of shielding, we don't see the same side effects as we used to. Like some prostate patients can literally fly through treatment and not know anything about it. Yeah. Like it, it is very much possible and you do see it. Um, other times you do see, it depend, there are so many variables with radiation therapy, obviously where you're treating and things like that. But again, even with the huge technology, we do see a lot of side effects that we have to monitor and we have to, like foresee so that we can equip patients with the tools to manage them. So yeah, if we're given that high dose, we have to help our patients along in terms of managing the side effects. So uh, you kind of talk about side effects. What what are some of the kind of lesser known but more pronounced side effects that people might experience? I suppose everybody knows about the skin reaction. Um, and fatigue is one huge one that we tell patients about everyone knows about it but I don't think people appreciate the level of fatigue that they do get and I, I think patients with chemotherapy already done and dusted they know that level of fatigue but the patients that only, are only having radiation therapy they are told about the fatigue but they're not <laughs> you know telling them that they're just not they're not able to see how far the fatigue is going to take them and the level of tiredness that they are going to see Right. Um, so the fatigue in the skincare, I think everybody knows about. Late side effects do play a role, but they are massively variable on where you're treating. Like if you're treating your prostate, you have to think about the organs in the area, like urinary problems down the line, um, PR bleeding. These are all problems that we have to make patients aware of. They are, the instances are small, but because our patients are younger and living longer, we are more likely to see them. If you get me. Yeah, that's huge because uh, I think there needs to be more education about what what the side effects are, but what these types of treatments are, because I don't think, as you said, people have the understanding of what to expect when you get uh, prescribed radiation or chemotherapy, what that regimen looks like. Are you going in daily? How long is your dose? Where's where's your the region that's affected? And I think people just kind of say, well, radiation, you know, but you're you're giving a really good insight into how localized the, the treatment can be and then how different the side effects can be based on where it's it's uh, being affected. Yeah, and I think a patient given a prescription of radiation now probably would look to try and talk to people who've had radiation themselves and look for advice, but often it, it actually isn't much help at all because they might have a different area completely treated. Like I had a patient the other day who asked me that, oh, he went online looking for information on the treatment. And he said, sometimes people get five to six weeks. Well, how come I'm only getting one week? And is it because that my cancer isn't as bad as theirs? But you like these kind of questions that they come up with, you know that they're looking for information about it, but they're probably looking at a, a prostate patient and kind of comparing it with a breast patient kind right. of thing. So given a patient who has a, a diagnosis, you'd really need to know what their 
prescription is and what kind of so there's like even like side effects that the, they are predicting to see how well would that patient cope with it even from a personal point of view like some patients will not tolerate any kind of skin reaction they just I think it's aesthetics more than anything else like we've had patients who won't will refuse treatment because they don't want to lose their hair or some patients will refuse treatment for, because of sexual dysfunction down the line they don't want that yeah. like it really does it's such a you can't put a one size fits all kind of thing to it so you I think giving a patient advice you need to know a lot about the patient yeah, it's a good point because, uh, as you said, well, people will log on to these these websites, and you know they're they're kind of the, they're governing bodies, but at the same time, the information is fairly generic. But the more I'm in this field, the more I can appreciate that because when I try to put out a blog or or some sort of information on how to exercise for cancer patient survivors, I'm just sat looking at the screen because there are so many factors that go into it, and that. That's why, our, so our guidelines are 150 minutes a week. That's why we have that. It's because it's just a catch-all, just to give some sort of information. But as you said, once you dig into it, it will vary dramatically based on, you know, the person, the treatment, the cancer, you know, medical history, all that type of stuff where I'm sure it's the same with, with radiation treatment. So it's hard to give that, this is what to expect. Yeah, it really is so difficult. Like even comparing radiation therapy and chemotherapy, chemotherapy being systemic you can pretty much say like any side effects from sore fingernails to like losing sensitivity in like in their toenails kind of thing all that it's all down to chemo basically whereas with radiation if you're treating the breast and you have a pain in your right leg you can't it they, you're not it's not the fault of chemo like or of radiation so you have to know what the site is and then think about the side effects. You can't say the side effects of radiation therapy are X, Y, and Z because the famous ones like um, skincare and the, the reddening of the skin, like some pelvis patients don't see any redness in their skin. Yeah. And it's famous for radiation therapy, but like doesn't mean you're going to get it. And then like you have that kind of almost scaremongering where you're like, Oh, the burns are are horrible. It's really like really bad sunburn. Some people literally walk through radiation therapy and not see any kind of skin reaction. It's a really good point. So, what about um, what about kind of diet and appetite during radiation? Does that uh, kind of it will tie back into our, our conversation about body weight changes? But have you seen much fluctuation in people's appetite and diet? And again, it probably uh, depends a lot on where the radiation is. But what have you seen from that perspective? Um, again, depends on where the radiation is. I feel like I should have that stapled on my forehead. <laughs> um, but it, you do see, with the fatigue and tiredness, people probably don't feel like eating. You, you get that. That's yeah. one thing. The second is, like, if you're treating pelvis or, like, abdomen and they have diarrhea or constipation, they're not going to feel like eating then anyway. And then... Obviously, treating head and neck, the barriers can be actually getting the food into them. They might yeah. feel like eating. And then, obviously, a lot of our patients are on chemotherapy at the same time. So, sense of taste goes and you have that metallic taste in your mouth. So, again, you're not going to feel like eating. Though, <laughs> that said, um, we have some of our patients, if you're treating, say, prostate, um, where they're on a low residue diet. 
and we do change their diet quite a bit, not for the better in terms of health because we do remove a lot of fibre. But we've seen patients put on weight because they're not eating as healthily. And again, that can affect how the radiation is distributed. So, yeah, I've seen both. I've seen dramatic losses of weight and I've seen increases in weight. Steroids as well, too, can increase appetite. So there are, I've seen both, basically. Okay, let's dig into this because it's, it's a fascinating area for me. So, you know, you initially reached out and one of the main points you were making was um, how how focused the radiation therapy is now in terms of millimeters in in region and how how much body weight changes either weight gain or weight loss can affect the accuracy of treatment so talk a little bit about um uh you know kind of how advanced and how small your, your some of your sites are and then how body weight changes can affect that okay like i was saying earlier to, to get, get those, those really high doses, doses of radiation, we have to make this, the area really small so that we're not giving high doses of radiation to organs at risk. Um, so that means that our tolerances are two millimetres and sometimes even we shift to zero. So we have no tolerances on, we have to treat exactly what we planned on treating. And to even think about what you're, what you're asking to do that, it's a patient who is moving, first of all, and it's a patient who could be on treatment for three, four, five, six weeks. So to ask the body to be in the exact same position daily for four, five, six weeks, is uh, it's a big ask, basically. So the tools that we use to try our best and achieve that are MRI, CT, and x-ray images as well too so bony anatomy too um so if you kind of go to the patient pathway and you can explain what it is so when the oncologist the radonc um prescribes radiation the patient will go for a ct scan and that ct scan is like a blank canvas and we will plan the treatment based on how the patient is sitting on the bed that one day so Sometimes the patient is on a low residue diet to make sure that the rectum is small. And or we do we have immobilization devices to try and put the patient in the same position. So if you're treating a head and neck, the patient will be in a, a shell. So they're kind of pinned to the bed so that they're not able to move that much. So we do our best in terms of making sure the patient is in the same position daily and also that their internal anatomy is quite is pretty much in the same position. So that's the CT scan and that goes off then to the planning department. And then some departments have specialist planners and others have radiographers that are trained to plan. So they will apply radiation beams according to what the radonc has prescribed. And if, I don't know what kind of a background a lot of your listeners are from, but if you try and think of um, say if we're, for example, you're treating a prostate and that you have the rectum posterior to that and you have a bladder and seminal vesicles like anterior and posterior of that. So to treat the prostate, we will have to go through bladder, you'll have to go through rectum, you'll have to go through the head of femoral, the femoral heads on either side. So there's a lot of organs there that you don't want to treat. Um, and there's a lot of variability in the organs in that area. So if the patient, I don't know, had a high vegetable diet the night before, 
or the week previous, their rectum might be larger or smaller than CT that very first day. So we try our best to make sure that the rectum is small and that the bladder is full and to stabilise the anatomy. Um, then if, if you, you put, put something, something in the mix, mix like, like a patient, patient training, training a, lot a lot and deciding, and deciding that, that they're going, they're going to, to do a do lot, lot of weight, weight training, training and you, you change, change the way, the way their, their body, body is laid, laid out, out from, from that, that one day, day at CT, CT that, that changes how, how the radiation is absorbed, absorbed or attenuated in those tissues. So if you have a beam coming in from the back of the patient and at CT there was a certain amount of muscle mass and fat mass, it was planned that way. And then if the patient goes off and, I don't know, squats heavy for three weeks and gains muscle mass and loses fat mass, the amount, the of, radiation amount of radiation that's, that, that, is, that is absorbed, absorbed is, separate is separate and different. And, different. and we might and be, we mightn't treating be treating the prostate, the prostate as well as, as, well as, as, well as we would have would have if would the have patient, if the patient has stayed the same. Stayed the same. And we can account for changes in bladder and we can shift to try and make the patient in the same position as much as we can. But if ultimately the patient is a different shape, we're talking a rescan and stopping treatment um, to replan it. So it's not ideal. And if it can be avoided, then we have to do everything we can to do that. So that's why I think exercise professionals need to be equipped with that information. That's fascinating. So it's almost like, you know, to kind of summarize, you will have this very small window or uh, retargeted therapy in which you've, you've strategically planned to, to get to a certain spot. And there can be things in the way and you've got to get around different things. And based on how your body changes across the course of the treatment, um, different organs can be more or less in the way and the dose and the, the, how effective the radiation is will differ because of that. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. You kind of said it a little better than I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, come here. Well, how often do you see this being an issue? How often do you find yourself having to do rescans or alter treatment uh, during radiation? It's not every day. It's. I suppose you might have the issue come up once or twice a month where you, you'd have a change in contour. Um, no, it's more often than that. I suppose. That, yeah, a couple of times a month you'd have that. But again, the reasons are from all sorts of reasons you just like uh, some of the prostate patients are on hormone therapy as well and they just get the munchies so they <laughs> might put on weight from that like so you do get situations like that or uh, often if you're talking it's sometimes it's really positive actually the reason that you'd have to replan if there's actual tumor, tumor shrinkage and the contour is changing because the tumor is now smaller then you'd have to replan Right. Like there are all sorts of reasons why you'd have to replan a patient's treatment. So in terms of the, the weight change, and this probably, I don't know if you'd have the answer to this, is there a minimum swing where, say, a two-pound swing either, either way isn't a huge deal, but once you push five pounds or beyond, then it starts to become a real problem in terms of how you're going to have to change the treatment? Um, all our patients are weighed a weekly by, in some departments it's nurses, but here it's radiographers. And the weight, um, so the, their weight is monitored. But if a patient puts on 4 kg and we're treating their larynx, you're hoping that 4 kg went on their legs, their abdomen, yeah. anywhere else. So then we can do a little 
Comb beam CT, it's called. So it's just a small CT. The quality isn't great, but it tells us enough to see that the patient's contour may or may not have changed. So we do a little scan then and we can see how much weight the patient has put on in that area. So I couldn't really give a guideline to say if it's 4 kg, then it's detrimental. It really depends on where the patient is having their treatment. 4 kg on a pelvis where a lot of people would put on weight might make a difference there. Um, So, yeah, you can't really give a like a metric like that. But we would overlay the CT image from day one and overlay the CT with the 4kg and we can see what the impact is in terms of dose. And we can actually see how far the dose is hitting if that if you overlay the two of them. So what level of inaccuracy you're having. Go back over in terms of radiation, typically people will get a mask or some sort of, uh, I'd imagine it's plastic, where um, you're you're trying to localise an area. To do that, you've got to put some sort of rigid object around it to, to really lock it in. Yeah, um, okay. So the I had a patient recently and we were treating base of skull and he had a mask made so uh, i suppose if you really want to see what the mask looks like if you type beam directional shell into a google search you'll see what it is so the mask is made of plastic and what we do is we melt it in like it's lukewarm water and it melts quite easily and then we place it over the patient and mold to the, the shape of their face so it is custom made for that patient And then we allow that to cool and it hardens. So then we take it off and it's got the shape of the patient on it. So then that patient has that mask applied every single day. So you're counting on that patient being the same every day in the mask fitting. And it is quite tight and we do struggle with claustrophobic patients. Um, But we do need it tight because we don't want the patient to be able to move. So it's uncomfortable, but we do need it to be that way. Um, the patient I was thinking of there, he was doing a lot of weight training and it, the mask fitted on his neck and his head, but his shoulders had put on quite a bit of mass and we couldn't clip the mask down. So again, another replan for that patient. Yeah, and like you said, if you, if you do Google that, it's it, it can be pretty uh, uh, frightening to look at, to see you know some of the images of, as you said, it's, it's fairly tight on the face there. And as you were talking about... Uh, using hot water to melt it down it's almost analogous to a gum shield where a lot of people you know who, who've played sports or have tried gum shields out where you you dip the gum, gum shield in water you chomp down on it and you let that gum shield harden and it also kind of speaks to uh how how small those movements can be in in you know if it if it fits your face and it's tight just like if a gum shield fits to your teeth if if you bite on that gum shield differently as it's setting and you then try to put it in, it doesn't feel right. You know what I mean? It no, feels yeah. off. So again, it comes back to what you're talking about, trying to get that to fit. It's got to be, you know, really accurate to, to be able to fit the body perfectly and hold them down for, or keep them mobilized for the treatment. Yeah. And then if you kind of compare different sites as well too, like we need a huge level of accuracy for head and neck because when you think of the organs that are of at risk in the brain, all those organs are so tightly packed and what on top of each other. You have to have a huge level of accuracy and you will be shifting to zero um, for head and neck patients or you'd have like a tiny, tiny tolerances on like we're talking two millimetres, one millimetre. 
Yeah, I I don't want to I don't want to uh, skip over that point. <laughs> like one millimeter is tiny. Yeah, you yeah. You know that that is precision accuracy. And I mean, if you're moving one millimeter one one way or the other, and that has such a profound effect on treatment, that's that's big. Yeah, like your, your spinal cord, you you can't the tolerances on that. You have to watch that so carefully. Whereas then, if you compare that with something in your abdomen, like the you've bigger organs, you've more space between them, you probably have more adiposity in that area as well. So your tolerances can be bigger there because the clinical impact isn't going to be as much if you're treating a little bit more bowel or treating a little bit like it, it just the impact isn't as much whereas spinal cord and bowel you kind of have to watch so much more also the, the complexities of it some tissues are more radiosensitive than others as well so your tolerances on what you think might be an okay organ to treat they are more radiosensitive than other organs so you can have to watch that as well too it is a hugely complex area and that's why giving advice is so tricky and you end up making these really broad statements being like oh it depends on on the the site and all this kind of thing so it's very hard to give concrete advice in these situations without knowing a patient so coming back to the the weight changes you know based on, on my understanding of head and neck would you see those changes kind of more often in that site as you said because cancer cachexia is huge in that population and the the weight loss seems to be pretty dramatic um, is that one where you typically see those changes coming? Yeah, massively. Um, the, the patients where you don't see weight loss are the exception more than the rule. Um, so because a lot of the patients can't get food in and they're on like nutritional drinks and fortisip and things like that to try and like aid their their own diet. But sometimes they literally just cannot get food in and they're relying on peg feeds alone. And obviously the motivation to do that isn't good. And that's why that population of patients, they, they struggle so much, but it's not so much that the treatment is causing the huge effects. It's the things that go with it, like the weight loss and the fatigue. And they, they're they the kind of patient who you'd expect bed rest and it's it doesn't help. And you do see huge effects with that. Um and the lack, like the motivation to help themselves is often really dwindled by that stage as well. So you, you want to help them so much, but they, they just don't want to be helped sometimes. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, I can imagine it's it's a pretty <laughs> grueling time for them. You know, the, I've heard that head and neck can be some some of the toughest of treatments. Uh, so come here, given, given the importance of maintaining body weight from the outset of treatment throughout the course of it do you have people on staff that that educate and work with patients on on how often is this kind of i don't want to say preached but how how often are you educated on this do they have people guiding them through treatment in terms of maintaining body weight um dietitians will help them with diet and trying to get food in though in some departments, the department I'm working at the minute, the patients are given a peg before they even start treatment. So they're anticipating huge weight loss. And there's loads of research to say that this is should be the standard of care, but other places don't do that. And patients kind of, they rely on drinks and maybe they might need a peg later down the line. Or sometimes patients actually do manage to stay eating the whole way to treat, through treatment. So the dietitians kind of monitor that. Um, 
or yeah, that it really is just dietitians and maybe an interested radiographer like myself. But other than that, <laughs> um, it is. So come here, uh, just real quickly, touch on the peg um, and what that is in terms of being a feeding tube. Yeah, it's a um, it's a feeding tube that is inserted before treatment for a lot of our head and neck patients, but it is mainly our head and neck patients. So if you're treating anything in the throat area, you anticipate that the patient isn't going to be able to swallow or they sometimes chemotherapy can give them that metallic taste in their mouth. So the motivation to eat isn't going to be there. And obviously the research is there that with cachexia and cancer, it is a huge clinical impact down the line. So steps are taken um, to alleviate that and the PEG just it is a, a backup plan, I suppose, where patients can put a certain amount of calories in and they know how much has gone in. And the dietitians can change the composition of the food that they take in. Don't know too much about how much, how they change the composition, but like some patients be on more calories than others um, and they would have different compositions of the food that they are taking in. Um, so it's, it is a backup plan, but sometimes you see patients relying on it overly heavily and then the speech and language therapists get involved where the patient might run the risk of losing the the swallowing technique and they wouldn't be able to swallow down the line so there's loads of things that they have to kind of think of as well too so most speech and language therapists yeah, are involved as well so uh you've got a, a brilliant background as as radi- radiation therapist or what was the other term in england therapeutic radiographer there you go um so uh you have this perspective as as a healthcare provider in looking from your side out trying to figure out who to refer to and i think this is a really important uh point of discussion because we talk about it from our side and say there needs to be more collaboration there needs to be you know more communication between exercise physiologists or trainers and the healthcare staff so Talk about kind of what you've experienced in terms of how how to find who to refer to and what your apprehension has been in terms of referring out. Um, when I worked in Waterford, I was I was heavily involved in like strength training in. It's a small city, so it's easy to get to know everyone who kind of trains in that area. So I did know a lot of the of people who are involved in, say, different gyms and personal training centers and. I, even personal training coaches, strength coaches, uh, CrossFit, loads of different kind of means of training. So I knew them from a personal kind of side. And then if I did come across a patient who, like you get questions of for breast, breast patients being like, is swimming okay? And yeah, swimming would be brilliant, except you're going to have a skin reaction when we don't want you in a chlorinated pool. So then I could refer to a patient to this trainer or that trainer and... I knew the trainers quite well and I knew that they had an interest and I trusted them. There was a level of trust there that the, they, if they had questions, they would happily come to me and we could build like a education program, a loose education program. It would be casual enough and we'd just exchange information as and when we needed. Uh, whereas now I'm in a different department and it's a bigger city and I don't know the fitness professionals in the area as well so if I do come across these patients I don't know who to refer to and I I don't want to refer to 
this trainer or that trainer are I want to know their credentials and I want to know their interest more than the credentials really I, like have they the interest to ask the questions and to act responsibly with the patient because yes exercise before and after treatment absolutely but I exercise during treatment I think you have to act responsibly and act from an educated point of view as well too so that's why I that's where the apprehension lies I suppose yeah it's a good point because I mean if you work with cancer survivors 5 10 15 years post treatment uh, for all intents and purposes they may have some late side effects but uh, understanding the nuances of of treatment and the the side effects are are less important as they are during treatment is where it's 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 really important that you have a, a solid understanding of what the acute side effects are what they're going to go through and how to modify exercise even something like our discussion today where if they reach out to you can they do they have the humility do, do they have the ability to talk to you and say you know I, i'm out of depth here let's talk about what the side effects are so kind of if you had if you if you were you know just working away and you had joe blogs personal trainer reach out to you and say i want to work with your patients what is your conversation then back to him and in, in trying to establish a relationship I probably would be very not I'm not wary, but I think I'd like to meet them and to see their interest in the area. Like, are they working with other clinical populations? Are they working with diabetics or are people recovering from different types of injuries? Um, like, have they the interest in like I don't I would hate to see that kind of personal trainer working on their six weeks transformation because that isn't the kind of trainer that I would refer a patient to because it's not going to be a fast transformation and it's not going to be, there'll be nothing sexy about this. This is not <laughs> going to be uh, like when you're going to throw on your Instagram kind of thing. This is going to be holistic. You're going to be, it will demand a little bit more time, but the benefits that this patient stands to gain are incredible. We're, we're not talking like looking better in a dress six weeks time. We're talking longer life um longer disease-free survival like they're massive time spent with their family so this yes it's not going to be glamorous but it is absolutely profound in the effect it can have and i want the personal trainer to understand that um also i think you kind of have to empathize like there is going to be a degree of empathy required in this because sometimes these patients are going to come in and they're not going to feel like training and they are going to be sore and scared even more than anything else like these kind of trainers are going to be another level of a healthcare professional and everything that's demanded of me in my work nine to five I'm going to expect from this professional really I you have a level of responsibility mostly I suppose and a huge interest in the area like they have to be open to ask questions and to collaborate um so it, it's things like that that I would be looking for and when I worked in Waterford there was there was professionals that I would happily refer to um but I would always be open for someone to come to me and ask questions because it's an area that's going to be bigger and better in the future but it will have to grow at a rate that is responsible yeah as you said there definitely needs to be uh, a good deal of of patience involved as well because as you said uh the the progress can be slow and it can be 
I don't want to say tedious, but it can be a, a kind of a, a long-term thing working with these patients, and you need to be able to understand that. As you said, some days they're coming in and maybe they'll get through a few exercises and they just can't do it anymore, you know, and they, they just yeah. want to sit there and have a chat or they're, they're coming in for the social aspect and understanding that if we're using this exercise as a therapeutic aid, it doesn't always have to be get on the bike, you know, and, and do your 40 minutes. It can Let's go for a walk and let's just chat about how you're feeling um you you need to have that kind of all-encompassing uh all those tools in your toolbox to be able to it's not just go 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 we need to be able to sit back and and talk about it but also educating your yourself enough to where patients and survivors have confidence in you uh you know i mean i'll use myself an example when i first started out um coming towards the end of college i'd have patients come up to me and say well i had this type of chemo but you don't even know what that is I have to hold my hands up and say, yeah, you're right, I yeah. don't, you know, and, um, you know, I, I'm sure you've experienced this as well. Patients, a lot of the times, do a really good job of educating themselves and what they're what they're receiving and the type of treatment and, and in some cases, the side effects. So they they know a lot of this stuff. And if, if they come to you as a trainer and you try and BS an answer, they're going to see you right through that. So yeah, yeah. Having, having the humility to, to hold your hands up and go, you're right, I don't know, but I'm working with Sam and she's an expert in this area and we're working together on it. Or, you know, I don't know right now, but I'm going to find out the answer. It, I think that instills a level of confidence in them. And as you said, building that trust, not just with you as a professional, but having that trust with the patient as well. Yeah, and I think even chemo regimes are changing all the time. And even acknowledging that you're never going to know all the chemo regimes, but even knowing that the side effects that are expected on this one and that one are having the humility to ask. Even, like, I struggle to keep up with chemo regime sometimes. You just have to, like, it demands a huge level of professional development and time that I, I probably wouldn't expect someone that I would refer to to have that level of knowledge. But if they're dealing with one patient and they know what regime they're on, then maybe, yeah, get to know that. And take a bit by bit and let it like you suppose a level of patience with the patient, but a level of patience with yourself as well. And every every patient you see is going to teach you something as well. Like this, it's it's going to be a slow process, but what you're going to gain from it as well, too, will be will be massive, too. So you've also uh, you've, you've also mentioned a couple of times this kind of uh, archaic mindset in in amongst the, the healthcare system in, in, as you say, kind of prescribing bed rest and, uh, you know, cancer patients shouldn't be doing weight-bearing exercise for fear of bony mets or whatever it is. Um, let's talk a little bit about that in, in some of the resistance you face amongst uh, your own profession. In You know, you obviously understand the value of exercise and, and you're doing a great job of, of educating yourself on the field of exercise oncology. How do you see that resistance look amongst your, your peers? Um, it's frustrating and you could say, yeah, it's, it's older professionals, but it's not like at the level of education that we receive, it's very much treated disease. And yeah, there's a little nod at holistic care and all like patient centered care. But if a patient has a huge interest in exercise, you could refer to a physio, but then sometimes physios aren't even, they haven't the time they 
they mightn't have the interest either. Like it really just depends. Um, Like one radiographer I spoke to recently, the, the same patient and he was head and neck and he was doing a lot of strength training and his shoulders had gotten, he'd put on mass on his shoulders and the mask wouldn't fit. And there was a huge kerfuffle about this and that it was kind of self-inflicted delay in his treatment. And there was a lot of, of what are we going to do about it? If he's going to continue to lift weight, then we're not going to put on a new mask because in two weeks time, we're going to have the same problem. But the patient was resisting to stop lifting the weights. Yeah. So this is like, it is an issue that we come across and the opinions that were thrown on the table that day were like, should he even be lifting weight? Like with the risk of bony mats on his spine. And then you get in other issues where like, this is, this is taking another opportunity from another another patient. And then I was bringing it to the table, <laughs> being like, the health benefits that this patient is receiving from engaging in exercise, it's it's huge, it's massive. Um, so while it's brilliant to open lines of communication between exercise professionals and healthcare professionals, healthcare professionals need to educate themselves, I think, as well on what's available for our patients in terms of exercise and how exercise can be a huge aid to radiation oncology. That's, I mean, it's fascinating to hear those types of discussions come up because I think we kind of fall into, you know, almost out of, I don't want to say ignorance, but we're kind of saying, yeah, our field is, is flying. You know, we've made incredible progress and we're getting closer and closer, but we may not be, as close as we think we are in terms of changing the, the perception amongst, uh, you know, providers who aren't educated, as you said, in the area of exercise oncology or don't appreciate exercise as a therapeutic aid. Uh, it seems like we still have a little bit of ways to go. And even, as you said, the, the frustration seems to be just in, in the time it's going to take for them to, to rescan and, and redesign a new mask is taking away time for another patient, which is understandable. But as you said, at the same time, if you're treating a person like this, this patient from a mental perspective, from from a control of their life perspective, all these things that th- if they want to, to, to weigh train, you know, and I'm sure you could, as you understand, you could probably educate them on ways to weight train that is still going to give them the mental benefit, get, getting in there, getting a release, but not put on mass. Yeah, it was that was the patient that I was like, I wish I could refer to someone who who could design a program for him where he was training legs more often or not. It was just his shoulders. That was the only area that we were struggling to get the mask on. It would not fit. So, and, but then, yeah, so that was one instance where I just needed someone to refer to. I was crying out for it. And if I had the background myself, it would have helped him, <laughs> but I couldn't. Yeah. Um, and the, like you were saying about the other professionals as well, too, I think it's not even about the patients. These are these are people themselves who don't exercise, who don't know the benefits for a healthy person to exercise, let alone a person who's going through these kind of treatments. So I'd, me trying to educate them, it's so far you have to go because they don't exercise themselves. And they're looking at this patient who is trying to exercise and they're like, what are you doing? <laughs> Yeah, you're really starting to kind of push a button there for me because I think that, and it was going to be a question I asked to you, I think that is one of, in my opinion, one of the biggest 
issues in in getting healthcare providers to to appreciate the power of exercise is that those people who are unfit and don't exercise themselves of course they don't see the value in it if they if they don't do it themselves and they don't understand what it can do for you physically mentally whatever it is they they then don't have the passion to to turn around and uh, prescribe it for patients or at least appreciate it to where that that conversation is less resistant yeah like these these are consultants who i suppose they, i know, i hate saying the phrase but they didn't have time to exercise and then they have patients who have this huge tax on their body and they want to exercise but they're like you need to rest because your body's undergoing so much already that's the kind of viewpoint that they're coming from it's a huge thing that you have to face and yeah. this is what I'm blue in the face from talking every day in work to or I think the definition of exercise like sometimes people think that you're out pounding the pavements and yeah sometimes if you have mets in your pelvis that mightn't be ideal but if there's so many other forms of exercise that you could take that would give health benefits and even mental health, like even if they just do yoga, if that's what they enjoy, let them do that kind of thing. Exercise doesn't have to be hugely taxing. That's massive because even take, go back to our head and neck uh, cancer patient, you know, if, if one of their biggest problems with quality of life and daily functioning is just getting out of a chair because they have so much muscle wasting and we can do basic and we're not talking about jumping under a bar and doing squats or power cleans we're talking about body weight stuff just to improve their their functioning that that's exercise you know and i think you you hit the nail on the head there where uh people lump exercise in together where you know it's going out for these 5ks or it's it's you know doing a crossfit workout and uh it's not the case when we're thinking of it as as a medicine and how to dose it yeah and then i think patients kind of even have that mentality as well too that like I'm struggling to maintain weight when I'm just bed resting if I'm going to exercise does that mean I'm going to lose even more weight and in that instance it's the dietitian you probably need to be working with there like the dietitian would have to increase calories to compensate maybe like that's another that that's on treatment more than anything else rather than after treatment but yeah that's another area that you kind of have to think with exercise do calories have to go up yeah and we've talked about this numerous times on on the show where the there's an appreciation in the field now where it's this advice or this this um this education doesn't have to come from oncologists i mean we understand that the power of physicians words and saying if, if they say you know consider exercise seriously it does hold a lot of weight but at the same time the direct consultations and the one-on-one work needs to come from an exercise physiologist so do, do you see the, do you see room for that in the current healthcare system obviously a lot of things would need to change but do you see a, a role for someone like that they meet with you they meet with their adonk they meet with whoever they also meet with an exercise physiologist to chat about all this stuff yeah i think it would be a case of us saying it to the patient and like suggesting this person because we won't, I don't think that, you, do you, are you talking about an exercise physiologist being part of a healthcare team overall or yeah, being? Yeah, analogous to, analogous to cardiac rehab, you know, when they meet with a cardiologist, they'd also meet with an exercise physiologist to 
to help design a plan that was going to complement treatment and get them out the other end uh, healthier and better. I My question here then is that, would that be a physiotherapist then in Ireland or in the UK? Uh, see, that's that's where it gets a little grey because it, absolutely, I mean, uh, funny enough, I talked to a physiotherapist yesterday about this in, it, it's not a, it's not a set, it's it's very it depends you know someone who a breast cancer patient who has a double mastectomy is absolutely going to need to see a pt um for range of motion upper body limb dysfunction things like that but there comes a point where the pt will fix a localized issue from radiation or sorry from surgery but then you know if if you have your upper body function restored but you're still 250 pounds you're diabetic maybe you have osteoarthritis in your knees and, and elbows then who do you go to so it's almost a blend and this is where we talk about this phased approach where the the initial phases of treatment is just kind of managing symptoms just getting you through safely and then it turns into kind of this general wellness general wellness program analogous to again cardiac rehab where the initial phase is when you're just going through surgery um we just get you up walking around the halls and then the next phase is getting you better from that so they have a structure in place where cardiac rehab is three phases of progressive uh, rehabilitation and it, they have spe- specialists cardiac re- rehabilitation specialists whereas with 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 cancer it, it it's so variable based on what what type of treatment they have their fitness level um how extensive the surgery is things like that where a lot of cases when we're working out in the community they may see a pt for eight weeks before they even touch us or they may see a PT for two weeks and come to us, or it may be they see a PT for their arm function and we're doing lower body strength kind of concurrently. So that's where the it's hard to say who, you, and who you'd uh, refer to. Plus, I think physiotherapists are a lot better appreciated in Ireland in terms of uh, they almost need to have that credential, I feel like, to get into the medical system, whereas I don't see... Uh, physiologist being as as well appreciated if that makes sense yeah i know what you mean is it a physiotherapist that has to take on that role in ireland because they have that level of like credential and it is so accepted or do exercise physiologists have to come up and look for a, a governing body in Ireland is that what it needs I don't know like in the NHS now if you ask them to integrate exercise physiologists they'd be telling you where to go because <laughs> they're strapped to pay for the professionals that they have yeah whereas some of the private hospitals are in Ireland yeah I could definitely see that happen where they have the money to spend but in the NHS I'd say it's got they ask the physiotherapist to take on more is what would happen so listen I'm taking up way too much of your time here. Um, so I really appreciate the insight into into the ins and outs of radiation. I think it's it's been one of the most in-depth conversations I've had. And it definitely gives a lot of food for thought in how to prescribe exercise and manage body weight and body composition during treatment. So it, it's huge that we got to chat. So if there's professionals out there who have further questions about how to how to go about doing this or even just information about radiation in general, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, I will be more than happy to answer any questions. But like I say, I'll need to know the site and what the patient is going through because I apologize if during this podcast I've been 
like really vague in my answers, but <laughs> without without knowing the information, I can't really give concrete answers. But if they do want to get in contact with me, they can catch me on my email, maybe uh, Samantha Ryan one two three at hotmail dot com, and I'd be more than happy to help. Brilliant. That's simple enough. All right, Sam. So listen, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it, and uh, hopefully we'll continue these discussions moving forward. Thanks a million for having me, Kieran.